0: Today's scripture reading will be uh, Psalm 3. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, it can be be found on page 448, 448. O Lord, many are my foes, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. My name is
1: Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I hope we can change that today would love to connect with you afterwards. Uh, great to be with you. Typically during our summers for the last couple of years, we have uh, done a, a different kind of sermon series because so many of us are in and out throughout the summer that it's hard to do sort of a, a book that has a big narrative to it, like we just went through Ruth, but if, if so many people are in and out, it kind, it kind of gets a little bit disjointed. So uh, to, uh, I don't know, to, to help us alleviate the stress of that problem, we hit Psalms, which is kind of just like a, a different episode every week that is Disconnected from the previous episode. Um, And so we want to do all that we can to preach the whole counsel of God. And so we have sort of embarked upon this 10 to 12 year uh, sermon series. Uh, And we take uh, during the summers chunks of Psalms, and we're going to start this summer with Psalms that have a three in them. So totally. Not super intentional, just Psalms, that have a three. Um, and then in August, we're going to try something new. We're going to break from summer in the Psalms and then spend the rest of our summer with a sage in Proverbs. I never preached from Proverbs, and I've never heard a sermon from Proverbs, so got a couple of weeks to prepare for that. But uh, anyway, we'll, we hope that you'll be back with us uh, in August for that too. So desperate times call for desperate prayers, This is the reality of what David is facing in Psalm 3. That little explanation there before verse 1, I don't know if you could see that there down in your text, The little explanation before verse 1 tells us that David was writing this, probably holed up in some cave somewhere when he was on the run from his son, whose name was Absalom. Now, why would a rich, powerful king be running from David, who was unfazed by Goliath, right? He walked right out, just killed him and cut the dude's head clean off, right? Years before that, he had killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands. Why is he afraid of one guy? Why is David afraid of Absalom? Why is he on the run? David is clearly a man's man. Well, first off, you can tell from the text that it wasn't just his son. Look there at verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Skip down to verse 6. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So how did David in all his splendor and glory, how did he get here in a cave running from his son and apparently many others who were in league with his son? Well, rewinding a few decades back to uh, 2 Samuel 13 to 18 kind of tells the, uh, the pre-story to our story today. Uh, a few decades before, this isn't right, but David had himself a whole bunch of wives. Uh, and with one of his wives, he had a son named Absalom and a daughter named Tamar. Uh, according to 2 Samuel 13, Tamar apparently was very beautiful, probably looked a little bit like Miriam. Look it up, 2 Samuel 13, 1. Well, David had another son. Had another son. Uh, His name was Amnon. Amnon was literally Absalom's brother from another mother. I thought that would go better. (laughs) Amnon becomes obsessed with his beautiful half-sister, Tamar, and he sexually assaults her. Of course, this angers David, but shockingly, grievously, he doesn't do anything about it. And this incenses Absalom, probably as it should. He hates Amnon for assaulting his sister, and eventually he kills Amnon. Well, after he kills him, Absalom flees Jerusalem for years uh, until David lets him back in the city. But by this point, Absalom's heart is just fully turned against his father, David, and he just wants to kill David now, too, and, and take over the kingdom. Well, over time... Upon Absalom's return to Jerusalem, he begins to gain power in Jerusalem and is able to sway a sizable group away from allegiance to David to allegiance to himself, Absalom. And it's a large enough group that to David, it at least feels like in verse 6, there are thousands, many thousands against him. So this time it's David who's fleeing the city, not Absalom. Well, as you can imagine, David is just like, he's at the end of himself. He has a rapist for a son, a daughter who has been raped by his son, a murderous traitor in his other son. His own people are betraying him, wanting to kill him, and so he's on the run. And it is in the midst of this painful rejection that he sits down to pen these words here in Psalm 3. He's a broken man in search of something solid to cling to when everything dear in his life is just slipping away. We all ought to wrestle with this text this morning. There will be a day when Psalm 3 is your experience. When you feel rejected. Maybe you've lost a job. You lose a loved one. Lost friendships. Trinity, we have to have a big enough view of God to be able to absorb realities like this. So when trouble is present and God seems distant... David is feeling what some of you are feeling right now this morning. Maybe nobody else knows, but you're feeling distant from God. You're confused about your lot in life. Confused about some of the fault lines in our society right now. Perplexed about why, if God is so good, the whole world, and tragically, even the church, seems to be hurtling off the rails at breakneck pace. The undertow of this text just says, Christian, pray. Pray. Unload your cares onto me because I care for you. So here's today's big idea. Let your troubles trigger your prayers. Let your troubles trigger your prayers. And we'll unpack this from three angles. Pray for protection when you're desperate. Pray for renewal when you're drained. And then pray for vengeance when you're distressed. The odds are not in David's favor to quote Effie Trinket, if you know who she is. You can hear the heaviness through his pen, I think. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. David is desperate. You know, this may have been on the real battlefield for David, but the undercurrent of this text pulls us in the same exact direction, I think. We're all against impossible odds every day. Number one, pray for protection when you are desperate. You may not fully grasp why the odds seem to be stacked against you right now. Maybe your income just isn't cutting it, talked a lot about that last week. Maybe your health keeps slipping. Maybe your marriage is disintegrating. Maybe you're unemployed and nothing is coming available. Maybe you're looking for a house and nothing is coming available maybe you're unable to conceive could be a million things when you're desperate and your prayers and your prayers feel and sound a little bit more than like a little bit more than groans pray them anyway god knows god knows i cannot give you a fully satisfying answer for why you are faced with this but this i know something is happening in your life the answer is always to make you more like jesus and help you make it all the way to Jesus. So the odds are stacked against David. What does he do? His first instinct is to go to the Lord. And I think this is so instructive for us. Prayer is the way we slug our way through trouble, says a guy named Dale Davis. David's prayer is for protection when he is desperate. Most of us, though, for being honest, we don't really start with prayer, do we? It's kind of like a last resort for us. This is problematic because. Our thoughts and actions in the midst of hardship have the power to make or break us. What you do when you're desperate has the power to make or break you. So what are you becoming by the things that you are doing when you're desperate? The one who turns to pornography to distract from his pain, her pain, will find themselves even more desperate. The one who flits to alcohol to numb his pain will find himself needing and wanting more until he's spending too much and destroying his health. The one who turns to their smartphone instead of to prayer will turn around a decade or two later, later and will dawn on them how much of their life was just wasted. David, in his desperation, he turns to prayer. And I'd encourage all of us to do the same. When you're tempted to reach for one of those things, whatever it is for you, When you're tempted to reach for a distraction, instead receive the gift of God and his presence and pursue it through prayer. Decide right now in your heart that when trouble comes, you're going to receive the Lord's presence and not reach for the world's distractions. Receive, don't reach. This is a kind of hard and sad reality uh, for, for me to admit, but many of you are aware that Miriam's father passed away tragically in an accident almost two years ago now. Uh, But before that accident, he left her some voicemails, and they are still, as you can imagine, saved on her phone. Why? Because she doesn't want to forget his sweet voice, his sweet southern twang, the way he called her honey, the way he always made a kissing sound before hanging up the phone. She's tried to talk me into doing that through the years and just has been unsuccessful so far. <laughs> but she doesn't want to forget. So every once in a while, she'll get out her phone and she'll listen again. Just to remember. That's what David is doing here in verses 3 and 4. He's reminding himself of who God is. Painting a prayerful prayerful word portrait of God. David turned to the Lord and look what the Lord was for him. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and third, the lifter of my head. When you're in trouble, when you're desperate, over and over and over again in your head, remember again the Lord is a protector, a shield. But we're not in a cave under threat of attack, right? What will protection prayer look like for us? I think while it's okay to pray for physical deliverance from our trials, it's fine, it's more important to pray for spiritual protection in our trials. Trouble in this life is inescapable. It's a sad, frustrating reality. But it's true. It's what Jesus tells us in John 16. In the world, you will have tribulation. There's no shaking that reality. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So knowing that trouble is coming... We need to make a plan now for what to do when it inevitably does come. Let your troubles trigger your prayers and let your prayers be directed toward God being your shield for your soul from bowing to temptations that are coming to take us away from Jesus. Spiritual protection. We're praying for protection for our souls during trials. Protection from the temptation to believe that Jesus just isn't worth it protection, that God's promise from disbelieving, that God's promise to preserve us in the end is, is just a pile of garbage. This one little prayer would change our lives. Lord, shield me from this. All of our temptation help in God. But that's a lie. God is a shield for our souls, and David tells us so here. So when that little spark of lust in your heart inflames, Don't believe the lie that there's no help and that sin is inevitable. There is help. Pray for a shield. When the match of discontent and envy is struck and you're surrounded by people more successful than you, with bigger homes than you, and bigger 401ks than you, and more Bitcoin than you, pray that God would shield you from those sins that threaten to take you down a path away from finding your satisfaction in God alone. Underneath your breath, say, Lord, you're my shield. Help. Protect me. That's what David does right there in verse 4, just maybe a little louder. In verse 4 he says, I cried aloud to the Lord. So there he is, David, all by his lonesome self in a cave, talking out loud to God. Why shouldn't we? But the Lord is more than just a protector. The Lord is a glory giver. Uh, You can see that also uh, in that in that same verse, whatever it is here. Uh, verse three. The Lord is a protector and a glory giver. This word for glory here carries with it the idea of heaviness or like weightiness. Imagine the encouragement this would have been to David at this phase in his life. i just describe it to you. Here's his son and all his cronies aiming to steal all of David's kingly glory. They've chased him out of his throne. They've chased him out of town. And now into hiding, if David were to look in a mirror while he was penning this psalm, this prayer, all traces of glory and prestige would have been gone. The thing that he built his identity on was all washed away. Accumulated power, accumulated glory, accumulated wealth, all gone. No crown, no robe, no servants, face probably covered in sweat, smeared with dirt. David's glory is gone. But God's glory was not. In verse three, the Lord offers David his glory. David's earthly identity had been shattered, but he's learning here what we've been singing recently in the newest song that we learned together as a church. My worth, David would say, my glory, my glory is not in what I own, not in the strength, flesh, and bone. My worth is not in skill, then here, according to Wendy. Our worth is not in skill or uh, name or celebrity, in win or lose, in pride or shame. As summer flowers, we fade, we die, fame, youth, beauty, hurry by. I will not boast in wealth or might or wisdom's fleeting light. The point is, don't source your worth, don't source your glory in finite things. All of that is kind of depressing until you learn that you can relocate your glory apart from all of these things. You can outsource your worth. In fact, if you want any sanity at all, you're going to need to outsource your glory and your worth to something else. The truth, this is the truth that David is preaching to himself in this moment. His worth is detached from his position and it's detached from his performance. His glory is detached from position and performance. At this point, he's already lost his position as king. He's hiding out in a cave. And by this time in his life, David is a lying, adulterous, murderous man who sat by and did nothing while his daughter was raped. That is low. But gloriously, this tells us that none of us are beyond usefulness because we approach God wrapped in the identity, the glory of another, God offers us his glory to shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We, like David, can have a scandalous past. Your mind can flip back to things right now in your past that bring you so much shame. You can have a scandalous past, but a saved soul. Because we are not accepted on account of our glory, but on the merit of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our failures... No matter the cause, do not undermine God's plans and purposes for our lives. Praise God. So when you are desperate, remember to pray in the reality of this wonder. In your unworthiness, you are counted worthy. In the same breath, you are unworthy and worthy on account of your faith in the Son of God. Don't you feel this desperation when you've yelled at your kids for the four millionth time? And the load of laundry you started never actually made it out of the washer and now it stinks like it's been in there for a week, like it has. And dinner is burning on the stove and all those things are happening at once. You may even feel like you've sinned your way out of being able to cry out desperately to God, like, I'm just it's too rough of a day, I'll start over tomorrow. No, in your desperation, cry out because your worth and acceptance before the Father isn't based on whether or not that laundry stinks. It's based on Jesus' perfect laundry, his righteous robes. Your value, your glory is fixed. Your ransom paid, your access won at the cross. So your book doesn't sell. So your post gets no likes. So your promotion doesn't happen. So your church doesn't grow. So you're not asked to be an officer in the church. Or so your book does sell and your post gets a million likes, and you're promoted, the church grows, or you're asked to be an elder. So what? Your worth isn't wrapped up in your glory or lack of your glory. It's wrapped up in King Jesus. Don't locate your glory in good things that can be gone. When your dignity, pray. When you're desperate, pray to your protector, your glory giver, and to your head lifter. The effect of being gifted the glory of another is having your head lifted. Chin up. I have one child who I will not name or I will owe money, but I have one child who is particularly oriented to shame. And she has when she has failed at something, she hangs her head. You can see it very physically on her face. She maintains a sad, a sad countenance long after it's necessary. Many, many, many times I've, I've gotten down on a knee and physically lifted her head. And I just like, you know, you're looking up and you're, you're trying to make eye contact and to get her to look at you in the eyes, once you make eye contact, you're just like, look, it's okay, I got you, I love you. When I see you, I see the daughter I love, not a little girl who failed. This is what the Lord is doing to David in his desperation. I love you, I got you, it's okay. And Christian friend who has made a mess of his life or her life, the Lord through Jesus Christ is the lifter of your head. Today he's wanting you to feel desperate so that through prayer you can make eye contact as you hear him say, I love you, I got you, it's okay. Lift your head. When I see you, I see my son's perfection, not your sinful pattern. Some of us need to chin up this morning because Jesus was lifted up. Outsource your worth, your glory to Jesus and live in the freedom of that. Lift your head. Before God's throne, you have a strong and perfect plea. Finally, in verse 4, David finishes listening to that voicemail that reminds him of all the wonderful things his God is and the last one is that he is an accessible listener. The Lord is an accessible listener. In verse 4 he says, I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. What's really interesting about David is far away. But the geographical distance between David and that hill meant nothing to God. It's because the Lord is an accessible listener. You may be in a deep, dark hole of sin that seems inescapable to you right now. You cannot claw your way out. You may have dug yourself a big old pit by your own stupid actions and you don't know how to get out. You may have spent the last year or two running away from God, but you're not so far that he can't hear. He wants to protect you from the eternal damning consequences of your sin. And That's not a popular message today, but it's the truth. In desperation, cry aloud to him. He is near to the brokenhearted. In times of desperation, pray for protection because your Lord is a protector, a shield. He's a glory giver, he's a headlifter, and he's an accessible listener. Second, pray for renewal when you're drained. So in desperation, David is praying. And now look what happens as a result. Look at verse 5. He says, I lay down and I slept. Restfulness. Verse 6. I will not be afraid. Fearlessness. Restfulness, Fearlessness. As I have sort of taken account of my own life this past week, these are the two biggest needs that I have in my life right now. Restfulness and fearlessness. Restfulness of soul and body. With all the anxieties of life and work, it can be hard to go to sleep. Just like straight up, hard to go to sleep or hard to stay asleep. Most Americans live at a pace that is draining, if not altogether crushing Restfulness, fearlessness, in the face of societal pressure. Man, we are all born with an innate desire to to fit in. And increasingly, to just fit in and still hold faithfully to Jesus, it just seems like impossible, right? Most of us are restless and fearful, if we're honest, instead of restful and fearless. We need renewal. We need to listen to the voicemail of Psalm 3 and remember that the bridge From desperation to restoration is paved with the stones of renewal, restfulness, fearlessness that can only be accessed down on our knees. Church, let our troublesome times trigger our desperate prayers. This past week, I read of an article about Bessie. Bessie was a Burmese python that accidentally was set loose in an Idaho apartment complex. A posse of plumbers was called in to find this eight-foot reptile among the walls and pipes of the 57,000-square-foot complex. They found Bessie loitering in the ceiling in the apartment above her proper home. For two weeks, the residents had been nervously checking beneath beds and underneath sheets for the huge snake. And after hearing the news of Bessie's discovery, one resident confessed, Well, we'll definitely sleep better. Huh, you don't say, right? Until a threat is removed, it's hard to feel secure. The interesting thing about this psalm, though, is that David didn't need the threat removed. The threat remained. He's on the run. Absalom and his posse are on the loose. And what does David do? He sleeps. No Tylenol PM, no melatonin, just sleep. Sustained sleep. If you're experiencing sleepless nights and an anxious heart, I wonder if you might allow might consider allowing your troubles to trigger your prayers. This past week I found myself following David's example here a little more closely. In the middle of my own sleepless nights, I cried out to the Lord about my distresses, personal flaws and sins that frustrate me, physical limitations, my marriage, my kids, deep and probing issues, our friends in Uvalde in Ukraine, and by God's grace, I slept. This is what David is doing. He is drawing near when he is desperate and drained. Still, there's a problem here that David is still asking to be removed. Third today, pray for vengeance when you're distressed. Pray for vengeance when you're distressed. Look at verse seven. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike my enemies on the cheek, And you break the teeth of the wicked. Now, I'm betting this makes some of us squirm a little bit. Uh, But I think it's really interesting that God preserved this particular prayer in this particular verse here for us. Wouldn't you just want to edit this one out? If If you're the editor, a little too raw, a little too violent. Like one commentator said, some of us get bent out of shape because the enemies are going to need an orthodontist. One of the implicit takeaways here is to pray our feelings. There's an emotional honesty here in verse 7, isn't there? Now, most of us want to say, now, David, we mustn't be angry at our enemies, right? That's not real life. Which of us hasn't been incensed with the desperate tragedy in Uvalde? If that didn't make you angry, you're not doing it right. Psalm 3 tells us that we ought to pray our fears and even our feelings and not stuff and deny them. Now we can, and I think our day has mostly idolized expression of emotion and feeling, but here I think we find the right place and the right uh, way to process feelings of hurt and anger through prayer. Don't idolize your emotions, but you don't stuff them either. Process your feelings through prayer. Still though, break their faces, David? Come on. You can't be serious. Well, first, the breaking of the teeth and the breaking of the cheek, I think is in direct reference to the way these people were sinning earlier in the psalm, using their mouths to mock God and his ability to save David. That's in verse 2. But even still, does the violence of verse 7 disturb you a little bit? I can totally empathize. I understand that impulse. But it's a destruction to to any. Excuse me. It's a destruction to anything or anyone that stands in the way of God stepping in to rescue his kids. That's what God is intent on destroying. Maybe it seems dark to you. I don't know. Bashing in the faces of the wicked. Is that really necessary, God? How the victims of Hitler and Stalin and Mao would have responded to hearing that their regimes would be wiped out and their teeth would be kicked in. I bet they would have rejoiced. I bet they would have partied. I bet they would have sung because... Because there can be no peace when wicked men still exist. And let's not get too sloppy with our definition of the word wicked here, too. If you're anything like me, my mind wanders to guys like that, and I feel safe about myself. Sure, those dudes were wicked and evil, but each of us is in our own way. Sinful darkness lurks in each of us. Wicked, from God's perspective, is any action that goes against his good and kind plan as relayed in this book. That is why Jesus' teeth were kicked in in our place, because we have fallen short of the glory of God. You get a real sense for how God views our sin from the foot of the cross. He hates it, and he will violently rid his world of it. You need a savior from that wrath. So do I. So while the reality of verse seven is pretty bleak, at least for the wicked, it is utterly necessary, and God is good and right to do this. Plus, this kind of prayer is, is kind of like the flip side of what you're praying for when you pray for God's kingdom to come. Like, that's a fun prayer to pray, right? Let your kingdom come, let your will be done. But that's what you're praying. You're praying for God's enemies to be destroyed. How else will God's kingdom come if the destruction of all that is opposed to it? The certainty of the prayers in verses 7 and 8 should sober us, but they should also excite us. Change is coming. Salve, <clears throat> excuse me. Salvation is on its way. When the rain of the sun finally touches down, God's going to rule and reign forever, and we will be safe forever. The victorious, joyous end of the world then, as it's relayed in verses 7 and 8, should color the way uh, we view the world now. It should color the way that we watch the news and scroll through Twitter. It should color the way we look at politics and even mourn the condition of our world. We may not always know as Christians what to make of our current events, But we can know with certainty where history is headed. Salvation and blessing. Verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord and your blessing be on your people. So by keeping the long view of the reign of the Son of God and by preaching this to one another, we can stay together and stay sane while we wait for God's justice to rain down through his Son. You know, one of the advantages of preaching sort of verse by verse through the Bible is that this process doesn't allow us to get away with, like, the seltzer water versions of God. You can tell yourself all you want that your cherry seltzer tastes like Dr. Pepper or that your lime seltzer is basically the same as Sprite. Ain't no way that's true, and you know it. We try to talk ourselves into it because it says zero calories on the back, right? Listen, I'm a big seltzer fan. I drink too much seltzer. No, but, but it ain't the same. You taste that stuff and you know it's not the real thing. There's no robust flavor in that can of bubbly. Someone said that opening a can of LaCroix is like, uh, and taking a sip is like being on opposite sides in different floors of a house and having someone whisper, Cherry. That's how much flavor <laughs> is in a can of Cherry LaCroix. It just doesn't have the same robust, crisp flavor as a regular. Ice cold Dr. Pepper. And I feel like we might be tempted to have this reality, uh, this really seltzered vision of God. If all we do is listen to the truisms created by some of the popular Christian authors we read, or the tweeters we tweet, or celebrity Christians we follow, there's maybe a whisper of the truth of God in there, but you can barely taste him. But when we read and preach really carefully through all of the scriptures, We get a very robust and complex picture of God, not a clean and safe picture. In this text, both. I love this quote from Dale Davis. I think I've used it before. He says, this tells us that God is not a mere three-letter word. The God of the Bible is not some formless blob of celestial protoplasm, not some sort of cosmic jello with a sickly smile. He has a nature, a character, positive and negative. He's not the grand relativist but the living extremity of your soul and see how different this virile biblical God is from the sentimental deity men imagine. There is nothing bland about Yahweh. The violent picture of God in Psalm 3 is in direct opposition to what we see mostly in the aisles of the Christian section at Barnes and Noble or on Amazon. Reminds me of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Maybe you remember this. When Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, the ruler of Narnia, is a great lion. And Susan is surprised since she assumed that Aslan was a man. She then tells Mr. Beaver, I shall shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. She asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe. To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. God is not safe. But he is good. This fact should help us discern how to process the distresses in our lives. Uncomfortable as the idea of God's judgment may make us feel, it's actually a great hope for us as Christians. If David was going to be delivered, the wicked were going to have to be judged, get their teeth knocked in, as it were. In order for there to be any kind of party that the Bible says is coming at the end of time, for all those in Christ, for all of us to enjoy that in full out peace and joy, the wicked are going to have to be dealt with. God's people will only have ultimate comfort if their oppressors, oppressors are dealt with. Dale Davis goes on to say, until the enemy is destroyed, God's people will have no genuine security. People may bemoan this teaching, but unless there is decisive judgment, there is no solid salvation. But verse eight reminds us that we can all rejoice that God is gonna right all the wrongs. This is exactly what David is praying for in verse eight. This is something that you and I as Christians in modern America need to hold to in this moment of our history. I mean, we're all grieved by what we see, right? Drag queens twerking for elementary schoolers and being celebrated. The celebration and defending of the mutilation of children's sex organs. Our right to brutally kill babies, little people, is not only allowed but celebrated by Congress. The standing ovations, racist, racist rants in all directions, and race behind every bush in all directions. But it's reassuring to know that in the end, God is going to rectify it. And it's okay to pray for vengeance on the, and rid the world of it. David prays for it here. In the New Testament, God answers the prayer in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Notice, David prays for God to enact vengeance. It's not our job. It's not your job to put people in their place or kick their teeth in, be it with your foot or with your keyboard. It's God's job. You and I don't have the right or responsibility. We must fully rely on God to bring about justice in his time and with his methods. We must hold to this. Vengeance is his. He will repay. So as we continue to endure as Christians, just know that there will be pain. There will be hardship. There will be tears and heartache. But of all people, we as Christians can keep these things in perspective. It is disconcerting. I grant to watch the world unravel at breakneck pace. And we want it to be different. But the mending keeps not coming. Everything seems to be continually fragmenting. But Christian, Psalm 3 and the cross are proof that the mending will come. David's eventual son came in the form of a baby, form of a baby and grew up to suffer the monstrosity of the cross for crimes he didn't commit. We can know that the mending will come because it has already begun. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, he was mending history's most violent split, most violent relational split. He was mending the tear between God and humanity. So the mending, praise God, began on that day. And he will come again to complete the mending process, putting it all back together again in a cosmic salvation that will bless his people, verse 8. There's coming a time when all of these statements, all of these promises will be fulfilled in Jesus. And all those who are in Jesus on the new earth and the promise of verse eight will become the reality that we all live in forever. The salvation of God and the blessing of his people. But in the meantime, Christian, with your head lifted and your glory granted and your soul protected, let your troubles trigger your prayers. Will you pray with me? God, thanks for this reminder from your book. Thanks for Jesus, who lived perfectly in our place. I pray that you would uh, keep us on our knees, that our troubles would trigger our prayers. Amen.